You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jeremy Kyle, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. So much has changed in the financial advising world since my childhood. The days of the Wolf of Wall Street are mostly over. The broker days of the past have been replaced with a more fiduciary model. Stock picking, once the darling of the investing world, has been replaced by broad-based indexes, mutual funds, and ETFs. And striking it rich has taken a backseat to retirement and estate planning. Our goals as a community of investors have somewhat evolved. Has the financial industry evolved with us? Today, we talked to Jeremy Kyle about his top financial insights from 20 years as an advisor. Jeremy Kyle and his team know that you only get one shot at retirement. That's why they want to help you overcome your retirement worries so you can focus on living out your retirement to the fullest. As a financial advisor at Kyle Financial Partners and the host of the Retirement Revealed podcast, he works to simplify complex financial issues so you can make smarter retirement investment and tax planning decisions. Jeremy Kyle, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's jump right in. What do you think the biggest value of having a financial advisor is today in 2024? The biggest value for an financial advisor to help you, I'm going to say two things. The first is helping you make decisions about your money. It's it's helpful to have an outside person, especially if you're in a couple, help guide you through those decisions. The other piece, I think, is all around tax planning. The idea of, I will buy this stock that gets you a better return than you could have done on your own might work. Odds are against it. And you don't even know if it'll work until 25 years from now. But the idea of you can make choices with your money and how you report things on your tax return. And when you do these things, that has pretty hard dollar, let me point right to it, kind of advantages to it. That's interesting. You bring up tax planning. I imagine back in the day when you're like, what do I want to do for a living I want to be a financial advisor. Tax planning probably wasn't at the top of your mind. Tell us how you got in this industry in the first place. Yeah, I got in this industry because I was a a physics major in college. I was going into the army. I was part of the ROTC program. I hurt my back. They would not take me active duty. And my aunt, who worked in this business, said, you love math. You love helping people. You should become a financial advisor. And thankfully, I, I followed her suggestion from day one. I absolutely loved it. And you're right on. I thought going into this, my entire day would be involved in, let me convince you to take money out of your low interest rate bank account and put it into the stock market. And that's what I would do all day. So let's talk about this. You've been in the financial industry for about 20 years, right? So that brings you to the early 2000s. I was a child of the 70s and 80s. And if you look at pop culture, there is a lot to be said about what the financial advice field looked like back in the 80s and 90s. I think of movies like The Wolf of Wall Street. There was this idea that they were out there really to make a buck and take advantage of you. Tell me how you think the financial advice industry has changed since then and certainly in the 20 years that you've been involved in it. Yeah, it seems like the thought, a lot of people still have this thought where either your financial advisor is going to make you money, just beat the market, do better than you could have on your own or better than the next person, uh, or they're just out to sell you something. And 
hopefully there's less and less of both of those things <laughs> going on. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I help people transition to retirement and they've never done that before. They've invested for 35 years. They've saved and had bank accounts and stocks and mutual funds. They've done all this stuff on their own, but they've never retired before. And they realize this is the biggest financial decision of their life and they could easily screw it up. And so what they're looking for from a financial advisor that I think I provide, and I, I hope the ones you're talking to that aren't me are providing is guidance on these huge decisions that you, you can fill out a piece of paper and check the wrong box and lose a hundred grand. These are huge, big deals that someone should be walking you through and someone should be using their expertise that, oh, I've helped a hundred people retire and here's what I've seen that you've never seen before. I mean, just because you've invested for 40 years doesn't mean you've looked at hundreds of tax returns or hundreds of corporate documents about pensions and, and actuarial tables about longevity and when you should take Social Security. These are the things that an advisor should really be helping you for, at least in my world, which is retirement planning. You know, it's a big point there, this idea that you check the wrong box and it could cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars or at least thousands of dollars. I feel like we make this big mistake. We're talking about the difference between accumulation and decumulation. When you're talking about retirement, you're really talking about decumulation. And a lot of us make the mistake that accumulation is the difficult part and less forgiving. Whereas in reality, a lot of where we get stuck or what is not nearly as forgiving is decumulation. Am I right in making that that point? You're, you're right on it. Think of accumulation as you're adding money in, you're probably doing this every two weeks in your paycheck. You work for 40 years, you've had a thousand opportunities to save money and invest and make mistakes. And you can change those things all the time. You, you retire and they give you a packet and they say, you have to fill this out in the next 30 days. And once you sign for your pension, once you roll over your 401k, you can't undo those things. You, you've got no practice. You've got no experience in it. And so it is a, a harder, bigger deal. And it's literally different math. There's a mathematician that's famous in my world of retirement planners named Moshe Malevsky. And he's, he goes through, I've got his book on my shelf. Here's the seven equations for retirement. And that's different math. It's different equations. It's a different skill set, both mathematically and even just psychologically. You've only seen your money grow virtually as you add money into it. And now you're going to start taking money out. That really messes with you. Well, it's a good point, right? Because I often talk about this idea that you need to plan ahead for retirement. But a lot of times I'm thinking emotionally, like you need to plan ahead emotionally because you're not going to be going to the nine to five. Your connections are going to change. You're going to be struggling with this sense of purpose. But I think when I put it in those terms, I miss the fact that you also need to plan ahead economically and financially. You've got to look at the numbers. Why can't we just wait to the last minute? Why can't we say, you know, a lot of people don't even know when we're going to retire. Is it 65? Is it 68? Is it 62? Why put so much time into thinking about it beforehand as opposed to wait when it's right around the horizon? Yeah, I'll give you a few uh, stories. One of them is why not wait till when you retire? If you ask a 55-year-old, when are you going to retire? They'll probably tell you 65. But if you ask a 65-year-old, when did you retire? They'll probably tell you 62. You actually retire on average two or three years before you plan for it. So you need to be ready at least two or three years beforehand. And it's unexpected. You didn't plan for it. You need to be ready for that. It's interesting too, because the opposite happens on the opposite side of your life. Most people, when you ask them, how long are you going to live? They will tell you a number that's below what the actual number is. And when you're approaching retirement, You've got this, this number, and let's just go with round retirement number worlds of maybe it's 65 to 90. You're planning on a 25-year retirement. In reality, it might actually be 60 to 95. You're planning quite often because of you know, misperceptions or just you haven't been there before. You're, you're planning for a different retirement than what reality is going to be. And so you've got to be ready for retirement before you retire. You also need to be ready for your retirement to last longer than you think it's going to retire. 
Yeah, it's kind of a stunning point, right? This idea that we tend to retire earlier than we think and we tend to die later, which means our time where we're not making money in what we traditionally call retirement is longer. Talk to me about what you've learned about people going through retirement. Is it the numbers they get stuck on or the emotions or both? It's definitely both. So I've had people come in our door and say, I need a million dollars to retire. And I've also seen them get to the million dollars. And I say, congrats, you have a million dollars. This is your self-proclaimed number you can retire. Well, no, I actually need $2 million now. And so that's part of it. You'll, you'll never have enough. I, I've seen studies. The answer to how much is enough is 25% more than what you have. Doesn't matter how much you have. The answer is always more so. The, the number piece of it, I wouldn't say, I'd say the, the hang up is more on what numbers you're focused on. There's a lot of numbers you just kind of heard, like you you work at a company and and I'm in Milwaukee where it's a lot of manufacturing kind of old line companies. You might have started there 35 years ago and you have pensions and things. And somebody might have told you 35 years ago, take Social Security at 62, take your pension at 55. And you've had this in your head for so long that you've anchored yourself to this is exactly what I'm going to do because you've told yourself this for 35 years. And yet- the world has changed. The contract that you were hired into 35 years ago is completely different than the one you're retiring uh, to. And so I encourage you to look at the numbers as in, here's something I'm kind of a math focused person like I uh, suggested earlier, is that you really ought to learn the math, you ought to do the math, and usually you should follow the math. But until you learn the math on your own personal retirement, and there's a lot of math there on how long might you live, What's your social security going to look like? Do you have a pension and how you should take that? How does this include your spouse? Until you actually learn the math and then you do the math. A lot of times the answer becomes clear when you, when you do those things. Tell me, which is the mistake you see more often? Are you seeing people get to the end of life and not have enough money? Or are you seeing people get to life and the end of life and have too much and they didn't use that money they had? What do you see more common? It's definitely they get to the end of life and they have too much and they don't use it. But then again, I'm a financial advisor. I'm talking to a person who has a million dollars on average, perhaps more, and they're worried they won't have enough money. And so they spend less than they could afford to, which is probably a great thing when you're 25, perhaps, and and you're building up for the, the future. But then you get to this point, I'm thinking of someone in particular, he said, I'm not sure if I'm going to have enough money. And he needed $5,000 a month. He has enough money to have $15,000 a month without running out. And so he is definitely on the path towards having too much money at the end of his life. And and in particular, they don't have any kids. So sometimes the default is, well, if I don't use it, my kids will, will use it. But he doesn't have any kids. What's he waiting around for? Why was he still working? What's he going to do with this money? It's Interesting. I, I met a 80-year-old uh, client and they've done quite well. And they actually mentioned to me, this money is kind of a burden, right? Mm-hmm. The, the wife, especially because the husband, you know, we're talking 80-year-old couple. So you've got some kind of gender traditional dynamics there with the, the money. And she said, when I found out how much money I had, I just felt crushed. It's a huge burden. You know, what am I supposed to do? What am I, you know, how do I handle all this? So the, the people I talk to end up having kind of too much money. They're just kind of waiting. I, what if I need it? And what if I need it later? A lot of times the later doesn't come. And if you're in that position, keep that in mind. The, the I'm waiting on this money till later. Later doesn't often come. It usually doesn't. Does that conversation look different to your people you're working with who are still working versus those who are retired? Because one of the things that I've found in my communities, it's really hard to convince people to start spending until they retire. They have this goal in mind. They have a net worth in mind. And it's hard to say, hey, you know, you need to start spending on things you care about now because that's the purpose of money, not just having a safe retirement. Does it change once they kind of cross that finish line? Do they start looking at things differently? They don't look at things differently because they have, just like you've had 40 years perhaps to invest, you've had 40 years of how do you relate to putting money into your accounts and do you spend enough or not? And it's really easy to say, have to, I have to save, I have to put this on autopilot. You're, you're kind of getting rid of some decision-making. It's tough to make decisions on 
on how do you approach your money and what does money mean to you? That's that's tough to do. That's something that you know I'm struggling with in my relationship with my wife of if she's got this have to, we have to, have to, have to save. And thankfully, I don't know if we can call ourselves financially independent or not, but we've got to be close enough that I feel like we have the choices of maybe we don't max out this one account. Perhaps we go on the vacation. You know, am, am I going to remember that 12 grand I put into my, you know, 401k extra in 2024? Or am I going to remember the, the trip to Hawaii? Like, which one are you going to remember? And which one gives you more meaning? That's, that's actually kind of tough to do, to, to switch that mindset. And most people don't switch that mindset. Whatever mindset you have now usually stays the same. I like to put in when I'm helping people, I call it permission money. Because sometimes you just need permission. Like I, you're paying me a fee to be your financial advisor, and I gave you permission to spend twenty grand extra this year. And people, it's like a huge sense of relief. People feel that relief because I gave them the permission that they didn't need, but they they appreciate having it. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded in my own trajectory of this idea that, you know, I got to the point where I had enough money saved that my net worth was two or three times my life insurance policy. And it was such a strange thing. And people looked at me funny when I said, yeah, I canceled my life insurance policy because I'm kind of financially independent. My policy limits weren't even that high comparatively. And God forbid something happened to me. We have enough money to support everyone who's left over. Same with disability. When I stopped working as much, I'm kind of like, got rid of my disability policy. And it's it's really hard to overcome the habit of being extra safe and careful is what I found in my own life. Another thing that plays into this, and I wonder how you see this with your clients, is technology. It used to be you didn't really know what was going on day to day with your accounts or with the stock market or what was happening until you called your broker and they tell, told you or you called your financial advisor. You know, the world today is different than it was 20 years ago. The apps we have available and the fintech or financial technology has just exploded is access to this information and in the financial applications of technology, is it making things better for these people who are right around retirement or is it making their life worse? Yeah, it's it's making it worse for the people that can make it worse. And it's, <laughs> it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking of, is this ac- access to your information on a split by you know second basis, good or bad or, or better? And I'm thinking there's really almost two parts of it where I feel as if it's good that I can check my credit card statements and my bank account statement every morning, which is basically what I personally do because you can see like, do I have money in the bank to do the things I want to do? Did somebody steal my credit card? Right? There's things that the apps are helpful for kind of on your cash flow basis. But the idea of, oh my goodness, and especially you get to a point where you're financially independent. You have a million dollars or more in the bank and you you or not the bank, but in your accounts rather, and you you look online, you see the market's down two percent. Well, you you just you don't make twenty grand a month, and here you are, you just lost twenty grand in one day, perhaps. That so that the the long term kind of your growth money, the fact that you're checking it every day, I've only seen harm, but I can see the good the good parts of let me check my bank account statements and my credit card statements especially on that on a daily basis. So we've talked about this idea that maybe one of the mistakes people make is that it's hard to loosen the reins and actually spend money even when you have it, when you get into retirement. Another possible mistake we make is an over-reliance on our digital fintech apps, et cetera, making us more anxious as opposed to helping us seeing the bumps. Talk about some other big financial mistakes we see people make as they kind of hit this either pre-retirement or retirement age. Yeah, I'd say two of them. I mentioned one briefly before is longevity. Your longevity is the biggest factor to your retirement. You know, if you've got a pretty looking Excel spreadsheet and you put in, I live for five years or I live for 50 years it's going to split out completely different values and numbers of how much you can take out and how much the money is going to grow to. And I think because it is an unknown, you do not know exactly how long you're going to live. Because it's an unknown, you have a general sense that it's not knowable, right? You can look up your longevity odds and your longevity length of time 
It's longevityillustrator.org is my favorite one. And so do that. It takes you two minutes. Go to longevityillustrator.org. Look it up. Uh, but then it's also interesting too, because longevity is a probability. It's hard for us to think in probabilities where, yes, it might hit on a certain age. Like People like to think in definites, like, oh, my longevity, I'm going to live to 90. You know, the chances of you living to 90 specifically when you retire at 60 are roughly 3%. Hmm. You probably will not die at your life expectancy. So you have to first look up your life expectancy. You have to look up your spouse's life expectancy. You have to account for this weird thing in probability that it's harder for two people to die than one person to die. So chances are the couple will actually last longer. Like the life expectancy of a 65-year-old couple is something like 30 years, even though the individual life expectancies is maybe like 25 years. It's not, but think about that, where it's you, your couple on average, you have to plan for longer than what your individual life expectancies look like. So there's, there's just some hardness around that math problem, around the probability. But just knowing that that number is going to, it's going to give you a better number because you looked it up than what you just guessed at. Also knowing that it's only going to happen 3% of the time. Half the time you will live less and half the time you will live more and make your plan so that what happens if you live less than your life expectancy? What happens if you live longer than your life expectancy? That's, that's the number one thing to keep in mind. I'd say number two is actually focus on controlling the things you can't control. So many questions I get are, what's the next president going to do to my money? And what's the next tax law change going to do to my money? What's inflation going to do to my money? You cannot control any of that, but you can control uh, how much money you have in the stock market, how much money you have out of the stock market. You can control whether you're getting 5% on your bank account or 0%. On your bank account, you can control when you retire and how much money you take out. You can control your taxes immensely in retirement. There's a lot of control there, and if you focus on what you can control, you will you'll come far ahead out when you are planning for your retirement. Let's talk about some of those things you can control because you just brought them up. Let's look at asset allocation. I mean, traditionally, asset allocation was two big things we always talked about, right? Which were equities and bonds. Nowadays, should we be looking outside of those? I mean, your average person, if they have an equities allotment, they have a bond allotment, I'm going to assume they might or might not have a little bit of real estate that they probably live in. Should we be diversifying more broadly? When you say more broadly, I think you're talking more about alternative investments. And I hear a lot from alternative investment wholesalers about what a great diversifier they are. <laughs> of course. And and then I happen to see how high the fees are. And then I hear Warren Buffett make a bet against all the uh, hedge fund people that S&P 500 is just going to beat the hedge fund alternative assets. And guess who won? Warren Buffett won. And so alternative assets are oftentimes more pitched by the financial salespeople I see. I also see kind of the type of advisors that are talking about the alternatives. And it, it just seems to be more, let me have this magic solution for you kind of advisor then let me help you through the process and it'll make good investments kind of advisor. So, so far, stocks and bonds, cash and real estate, those are working out. And the alternatives are, there's a lot more under the hood than what maybe you're reading about, but the person trying to sell it to you. The other thing you mentioned is tax planning. And I wonder, do we underestimate the importance of tax planning? Because again, everyone gets caught up with how much equities I have, how many bonds I have, what's going to happen with the S&P 500 index over the next 10 years. But you've brought it up multiple times that actually tax planning may play a bigger role. Yeah, tax planning is huge. And it's huge in retirement because you have more control of your taxes in retirement than beforehand when you were working. Think of when you were working and you had a, let's just say you had a W-2, right? You get your W-2 at the end of the year, you give it to your tax person and you plug it into TurboTax. There's not much difference you can do there. But you're retirement and you've got these accounts, you've got these decisions about social security and required minimums and, and all kinds of things. Just think of if you have an account, you could take that money out in December or you could take it on January. That's two different tax years, two different tax situations. Or you have these different accounts. You have traditional, you have Roth, you have a brokerage account, you have a savings account. Four different accounts four different tax situations, and you have the choice over which account you take it from, 
you have the choice of when you take that money on out. And that's not just the December, January thing I talked about, but just do you take that money out now or later, right? You have traditional money that you could move over to the Roth and you were saving that traditional accounts a lot of times because you thought, well, my taxes will be lower in the future. Well, let's just think of what's going on right now. In general, the stock market's not at a uh, exact high point in late 23, early 24, right? It's not exactly at the high point. Theoretically, if you converted money from your account today and it got back to even, it should be higher when it gets back to even. Would you rather pay the taxes on the lower today number or the higher future number that's uh, in there? Or you've got the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act or the Trump Tax Cuts, whichever you want to call it. Those are scheduled to go away. Taxes are scheduled to go up in 2026. Would you rather pay taxes at a known lower rate or what's scheduled to be a higher rate? Or just even if there's two of you, when there's two of you going into retirement, there's only one of you at the end. And that one person, often the widow, she is facing higher taxes because all those tax brackets as a married filing joint person get cut in half. So your income gets higher into the higher brackets quicker. So you've got all these different things. There's, there's ways that Social Security gets taxed that somewhat doubles your actual tax rate that you think you're in. So you've got things to look at of, do I want to pay taxes now or do I want to pay taxes later? And it's not exactly that today taxes are lower and tomorrow taxes will be higher, but plan it out for yourself and see when over time will I have a lower tax situation? That's when you want to have your income. You want to have an income show up on your tax return when you have a lower tax situation. And when are those times where I have a higher tax situation? Well, that's when you want to defer. You want to avoid having income show up on your tax return. And if you plan that out, you and even just think of uh, con constructs. You don't have to do every single tax year for the rest of your life, but think of what happens before and after retirement, before and after Social Security, before and after required minimum, before and after one of us gets widowed, and just have that thought exercise of, will my taxes be lower at a time before that, or will it be higher at a time after that, and pay the taxes when you expect them to be lower. We are talking to Jeremy Kyle. He and his team know that you only get one shot at retirement. That's why they want to help you overcome your retirement worries so you can focus on living out your retirement to the fullest. And we are discussing what has changed in financial advising over the last 20 years and specifically what are some of those important factors to think about as you get closer to retirement or are in the midst of it. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenues, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com earn. 
That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. We are back with Jeremy Kyle. He is a financial advisor at Kyle Financial Partners and the host of the Retirement Revealed podcast. He works to simplify complex financial issues so you can make smarter retirement investment and tax planning decisions. And we've been talking about how financial advice has changed over the last 20 years. I made the point that the financial advisors back in the day when I was a kid didn't really seem like they were there to support their clients. It was a very different look at financial advising. I think with the fiduciary model, things have changed. So let's talk about financial advisors for a bit here. First and foremost, you're really dealing with people as they get into that pre-retirement, retirement age. What percentage of people do you think really do need financial advice at that time? I think virtually everyone needs financial advice. They may not need or want an ongoing financial advisor. So the people reaching out to me are generally saying, I have all these big one-time retirement questions, and I have these ongoing questions about taxes and investments. And I just can you take care of this investment planning for me as well? So they're kind of asking me for, for all of that. And I meet a lot of people in the financial independence community. I talk to friends and that investment piece doesn't have to show up from a financial advisor. Transcribed to the idea of I'm going to be a better investor than you. I don't know. We'll find that out 25 years from now, if that's going to actually work out. You might prefer to have me taking that responsibility and helping you. And I've got a whole bunch of expertise and knowledge and you know, hopefully you do do better, but you just don't know. But then you've got these one-time things when it comes to retirement that no matter how much you've studied, no matter how much you've invested, if you're not a retirement-focused financial advisor, you probably are missing something. And even if you've learned it all, you haven't seen how it applies to a whole bunch of other people. And maybe can get some wisdom out of somebody that's seen it from from others. So the idea of at the minimum talk to a financial advisor, you know, pay them by the hour perhaps, only talk to them one time, have them just look through your spreadsheets and say, yeah, everything you thought of is good. It should be well money well worth spent. And I'm thinking of right now people that aren't planning to retire. There's huge things going on with uh, public service loan forgiveness and student loan debts. I I have a friend who focuses on this thing called double consolidation. I have no idea what double consolidation with student loan debt is. That's not my expertise. So when someone's asking me about student loans, I say, go talk to my friend, Eric. There is huge in-depth knowledge that's required to save hundreds of thousands of dollars on your interests or taxes or, or make from social security. And if you talk to an expert that studied that particular area that you need to help in, they should be able to give you some value. So what makes a good advisor and how do you find one? Because there are millions of advisors out there. So how do you know you're getting the right person? That's that's tough. I wish I had an answer that's succinct and tell you, well, here's the exact perfect answer. So I would say a couple of things. One is to find someone who's an expert in the field that you need to help with. If you are a doctor, find a doctor-focused financial advisor. I have a friend in Madison, Wisconsin, who only helps emergency room doctors. That's a different story than just doctors in general, right? There's That's that's quite a, a specialty niche, but there's different things going on where he can focus and, and find these, these parts of value in their financial picture that he can help out with that. I mentioned my friend that does the student loan forgiveness and I focus on this kind of retirement planning, kind of a normal retirement. You're 60 years old and you retire. It's not the early retirement on there. So the first thing is to find someone who's an expert uh, in the field that you need the the advice uh, with. Another thing is just to double check them. I I have new prospective clients come into our office and they've built a list. They've gone online. They've got a list of 10 questions they're ready to ask. And the first one's always, are you a fiduciary? And I answer yes. And then they promptly fold up their questions and put it back in their pocket. No, ask all the questions meet multiple advisors and figure out who's going to work better with you. Ask them what their process is. Ask them who their typical client is. I had a few clients come in in the past year where they worked with a, a bigger firm and these clients had a million and a half dollars. And they said, 
I just felt like I was a little guy. They didn't really seem to care about me. Well, clearly this, this firm, you know, maybe doesn't focus on million and a half dollar clients and, and maybe they were the little person, right? They just weren't getting the attention that they were getting. So find out someone who's an expert in the area that you need the help with. Interview multiple people with asking them all the questions beyond just the fiduciary. Ask them what their process is. And then get a sense for feel. Are they educating you? Are they trying to puff themselves up and say that they're the answer to all your problems? Or are they trying to educate you and help you to learn more about your money? That's, that's getting you in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, it hits me as we're talking about this that Assuming that we're talking about fiduciaries, right? So we're limiting this only to fiduciaries, which is a very important move to make. But there's knowledge and fit, right? And so having just one but not the other doesn't work. You've really got to make sure you check off both of those boxes. I would say yes. And I want to talk about this limit to fiduciary. If you pulled 100 random financial advisors right now and asked, are you a fiduciary? I'd be willing to bet a hundred of them will say, yes, I'm a fiduciary. But when you look at the numbers, there's probably 20 of them that are only a fiduciary. There's probably 60 of them that have both their investment advisor license and their broker dealer license. And they could be a fiduciary to you at some point in time. And then there's maybe another 20 that only have their insurance license or only have their broker dealer license. And they would probably still say fiduciary because they hopefully believe that they're going to act like a fiduciary. So that's that's a tough one. It's it's funny to me, all this focus on the word fiduciary, when I'd be willing to bet that almost every advisor, whether they're fiduciary or not, when you go ask them, are you fiduciary? Well, ask that question as yes, I am. So go, go and check, right? You can go to, it's the Investment Advisor Public Database. It's with the SEC. And you can find out are they registered and only a fiduciary? Or do they have this kind of dual purpose of where they are a fiduciary sometimes and they are a broker able to sell you something sometimes? And those people aren't necessarily bad just because they have that, that license, but you ought to know of, are you truly a fiduciary? And will you be acting as a fiduciary to me? Right? Do you, they might be selling you something. They might be acting as a fiduciary. You've got to really find that out and dig in. Yeah, I think we see this a lot too with brokers who are managing your money who then say, hey, have you thought about this life insurance policy or have you thought about this disability policy or et cetera, that when they bring in that extra piece, they may not necessarily be a fiduciary when it comes to that piece, although they are, let's say, for managing your investments. I think a lot of people don't realize that that duality can exist. Right on. Yep. And also to this, another term I hear uh, a lot of times people ask me, oh, are you a fee-only advisor? And I like to ask back, what do you think uh, fee-only advisor mean? And if you ask, you know, a hundred clients, advise, you know, investors that aren't advisors, what do you think fee-only means? The vast majority would say, oh, fee-only means they charge by the hour. They're not, you know, making commissions. And they're right about the not making commissions part. But most fee-only advisors are doing that, that AUM charge you a percentage of your investments, which isn't wrong. What's wrong is the perception. Is it, I, I get this uh, question, I see people all the time asking, oh, they're fee-only advisor, they're, they're good to go. And they're thinking, well, this is a charge you by the hour, like a, a therapist or accountant kind of thing. And in reality, it's the, it's the same charge you a percentage of their investment assets that you're maybe trying to get away from. Are there any warning signs that we should look at and say, boy, if we see these, we should definitely not hire this person to manage our money? Yeah, so I'm going to give you two. One is to go to that SECU database, the Investment investment Advisor Public Database. There's also one through FINRA called BrokerCheck. Go through those to see, are there any disclosures? And just because there's a disclosure doesn't mean that they are a bad advisor. It just means someone had a complaint at some time in their life. But read through that. And was that a complaint dismissed? Or was there something that said, oh yeah, this advisor was fraudulent and they got kicked out of the industry? And you, you can see these things on those broker checks, especially, and, and so few investors are actually going to look at that. That's a huge, huge deal. That's, you got to run a background check on the person that is, is going to be managing your money, perhaps. Another good question I like to ask is, how do you get paid? So if you go in and say, how do you get paid? And they say, 
don't worry about it. The uh, company pays me. You don't have to write me a check at all. I think that's a sign you run away because they're just not transparent. It, that's describing someone getting paid by commission. If someone said, how do you get paid? And I say, well, we work together. And if you buy certain things, then the company will pay me a commission. That's transparent, right? But if they say, don't worry, you don't pay anything. It all comes from the company. Well, how did the company get the money? They got your money that they're paying to that investment advisor. And so that, I think that not even just this specific answer, but how do they, what's their demeanor and how do they respond to that question of how do you get paid is a good sign. So let's broaden the lens of the conversation a little bit and go back to your experience over the last 20 years. Has the kind of advice you've given changed? Have things fundamentally changed in the last few decades that the financial advice we're giving today is different than it was when you started? I'd say yes, at least for me personally. I talk less and less about investments and more and more about decision-making. When do you retire? How much can you afford to take out of your investments? Which isn't, let me buy and sell stocks and bonds. How much do you put into the market, take out of the market? How do you, you already have an annuity somebody else sold you. How do we do the best with that? You already have your life insurance and disability insurance, or perhaps you need that. How do you do the, the, the best with that? These are, these are not sell this stock, buy that stock kind of decisions. It's amazing as a investment advisor, how little investment talking I do and how more kind of financial and, and life talking I do. Because that's really the value you can get out of a financial. You, you know all the studies. The chances are an active mutual fund picker is not going to do better than the index funds. Go and find the person that is helping you make decisions about areas that you haven't maybe thought about or, or need an expert to do that. So you've shown this clear evolution, this trajectory of what you thought you'd talk about versus what you do talk about. You're a lot less, you're spending a lot less time talking about specific financial investments and a lot more in decision-making. How do you think that's going to look in the next 20 years? Do you see that this will pivot, change? Do you think the investment decision-making will be making in you know, 2043 will look very similar to 2023? How would it be? It'd be hard to say things won't change in the next 20 years. And it's interesting to think of, and I listen to a lot of financial advisor podcasts and go to conferences and, and there's big talk about how do advisors get paid and how perhaps it'll be on an hourly basis or maybe like a project. Everyone gets charged the same 5,000 bucks a year by the same you know, for that one advisor. And yet at this exact moment in time, I'd be willing to bet like less than 1% of the revenue of all financial advisors is actually coming in from those, those areas. So it's, it's interesting to think of how much things haven't changed. I suppose the last years, most financial advisor revenue coming in, how they were getting paid was from commissions. And now it's from percent percentage when you're getting, you know, Billing a percentage against your assets. Kind of assets thing. under management. Yep. Yeah, assets under management. So you've there's been a change in the 20 years there. There's got to be another change in the next 20 years. Who knows what it's going to be? Well, it's interesting because I spend more time now learning about how do I help people make decisions and less time about uh, you know which stock is the best, which tax bracket is the best. I have my advisors go to classes on something called motivational interviewing, which is a way to guide people through the decision making process. It's interesting. I go to financial advisor conferences. We met at a financial advisor or financial conference rather. And a lot of times the main stage speaker will say the key to success is to ask good questions. And then they don't bother telling you how to ask good questions. Yeah. And so I, I was seeking this and, and found that my wife's a school counselor. And so I, she introduced me to this thing called motivational interviewing, which is learning how do you help somebody else make good decisions or how, how do you make them, how do you help them make the decisions that they're, they're trying to make? Talk to me about your personal financial plan. You've now been doing this for 20 years. How has the way you've managed your own money changed? The way I manage my own money, it hasn't changed terribly too much. I remember when I was 18 years old and I was sitting in my family's living room and I was reading prospectuses over which of the three S&P 500 index funds I should invest in. And of course, I was 18, little did I know, it probably didn't matter which of the three S&P 500 index funds choices that I had. What only mattered is the fact that I invested, 
right? So that's so I've invested mostly in stocks myself. Personally, it's interesting too. I'm a I'm a business owner. And so even though I consider myself young, even though I believe in the role of the stock market of growing wealth over time, I've built up at least 10% of my investments are just straight cash. Like I can get the money out tomorrow for two reasons. What if, you know, everything crashes and I need to make payroll? Or what if a big opportunity comes on? And as a business owner, you need to have cash available to do that. So I have more cash on hand than I really thought. Maybe I would have if, if you walked into my office as a you know 43-year-old and, and said, I want to invest for the future. I probably wouldn't suggest you have that much cash, but that's just me personally as a business owner. And the interesting thing too, which had it changed, and I'm thinking back to when I invested $250 as an 18-year-old in the S&P 500 index. I've grown my net worth and knowledge and income. I'm now an accredited investor. And so I have access to these different, sometimes alternatives like you're talking about <laughs> compared to you generally don't have that. And what I've used personally for that is real estate investments. I found, I don't know if syndicate's the right word, but I've uh, found a few people I know that are invest part of our money into, into real estate. And those are just only available as an accredited investor. So that's almost just like a, a technical piece on how it's changed. But hopefully the, the really the everything's the same in terms of I spend a little bit less than I make. And so I have extra money to go out and, and save and invest. And that's what I'm trying to do. Well, Jeremy, I would like to thank you for being on the show today. As I think about this conversation, you know, I've gotten caught in this idea of, well, what has changed in investing in the 20, last 20 years or even the last 40 years? Because I'm thinking about when I was a kid. And what I think it really boils down to is we're asking our investors less today what to invest in. And the truth of the matter is because we kind of know that's almost already been answered for us. We know about indexes. We know about mutual funds and ETFs. We know about diversification. Even lay people are starting to know more and more about that. But you bring up a great point. What we're really looking for is an advisor who asks the right questions. And I think that's what I really glean from our conversation. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where people can find you. First and foremost, Tell us what is happening in your business, Kyle Financial Partners. What's happening for you guys? So my business where I help you as a financial advisor is Kyle Financial Partners. It's kylefp.com, K-E-I-L-F-P.com. It's myself, a few other advisors that I teach them the process of helping people make uh, great retirement decisions on there. But what's happening, I suppose, next to my business too is it's, I've had a podcast for the last four years. It's the Retirement Revealed podcast, but going to a place called FinCon recently has sparked my interest in educating people through YouTube. And so we've got the YouTube channel, which I'm hoping by the time this comes out, that YouTube channel will be Mr. Retirement. It might be Retirement Revealed, like the name of my podcast, but it should be Mr. Retirement by the time you get, you're listening to this. And I'm just trying to Take this idea of here's the things you should focus on as you approach retirement, and let me educate you on making great retirement decisions. Jeremy Kyle, thank you so much for being on Earn and Invest. Thank you, Jordan. It's been great. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take this chance to thank everybody. This is the last new episode of the year. We're doing a rewind episode for the week of Christmas. And I just wanted to say thank you to everybody. This has been a big year. We are up to 483 episodes. That's 483 numbered. It's actually probably closer to 490. I started this podcast in November of 2018. And since then, we've had about 3 million downloads. A lot of things have changed this year. One thing is that I spent a lot of time promoting my book, Taking Stock, as well as we started the Wealth with Purpose mastermind, which has been really cool 
between the book and the mastermind and putting out two episodes each week, I've kept quite busy. This has been probably my fifth or sixth year that I would consider myself retired early. As you all know, I was a busy practicing physician and I started subtracting out those things I didn't like in my career. And back about 2017, 2018, I got rid of everything but hospice. I was doing it a lot more full-time back then. I was managing four or five teams, maybe doing it, let's say, 20 to 30 hours a week. Since then, I've pulled back to just about 10 to 15 hours a week. So it's given me a lot of chance to think about life post-fire, post-retirement early, if you really want to call it that. I mean, I still make some money doing a few things medically, as well as with writing books and podcasting, but the grand majority of my income is gone. It's given me a lot of time to reflect about what's important and what makes us happy. Clearly, I can look at my life and say that I am probably the happiest now that I've ever been. I am spending most of my time doing things that I want to do, but it's not perfect. I have bad days. I have frustrations. I have days where I feel like I should be doing more and then other days where I feel like I should be doing less. It really makes me think about this idea of there being a happiness set point. Like, if happiness scales from zero to 10 and your average person is at five and maybe your person who's happier at baseline is at a six or seven, the question is how much of developing the life you want to live gets you closer to being a 10. I don't think you can ever get to a 10. I think none of us get there. It's very aspirational. But maybe you can go from a six to a seven or from a seven to an eight. And in many ways, I think I went from either a six or a seven to a seven or an eight. I'm definitely not at a 10. There are things that I still want to do. There's still days that aren't perfect. Uh, But I find myself much happier than before. And certainly what I think is higher than my general set point. So I think that's a good thing for everyone to think about for the coming year. Forget your finances for a moment. Even forget your dreams and aspirations. Let's talk about where your happiness set point is between 0 and 10. Maybe it's a 5. The question is, how do you get past a 5? Most likely you're not going to get it to a 10, but how can you start organizing your life so that maybe you'll get to a 6 or 7? I think this is what most of our goals should be. I certainly think that this is what my goal should be. And I've realized that there are a number of things I can do to do that. One is I can exercise regularly. Another is I can stretch every day. Another is I can read regularly. I try to read at least an hour or two each day. Another is that I can have pursuits that I'm genuinely passionate about where I feel like I'm growing and learning, things like podcasting and book writing. Uh, Another is to work on relationship with my wife, with my kids, with family and friends. These are all things that I think I can move past that baseline, that six or seven, and get me towards a seven or eight. And I think for you, the big question is, what will do that? My goal is that this podcast will do that a little bit too, right? That's why I've made almost 500 episodes. Uh, That's why you hear my voice every Monday and Thursday. This podcast can't make you happy, but certainly maybe it can give you some of those insights in how to organize your life in such a way that happiness is more likely or that you can focus more on it. Maybe this podcast will help you with your finances to the point where you can put it on autopilot and spend more time figuring out what purpose, identity, and connections look like in your life. Either way, I'm thankful that the holidays are here and I very much feel like the Earn and Invest community has added to my life. And so I hope I and this podcast have added to yours. May this be a great holiday season and a happy new year. And we will see you after this Rewind Week. Thanks again for showing up. All right, I leave things going just for after show. I keep recording just to... To catch what we talk about afterwards anything we didn't talk about any part about you or your business or kind of what you specialize in you think we didn't get to i don't know if there's anything that we didn't get to you've had a uh, you've done your research which is which is great it's interesting how there are there are do-it-yourselfers that i run into because i do a lot of webinars and if you're a do-it-yourselfer you're kind of learning a lot you go to a lot of places to get uh, education and then you're, you're wanting to maybe get 15 minutes free on our calendar that we you know offer. And they've done well on the investment side, 
and they've got the thought that the only way to work as an investment advisor is just to, you know, take my million dollars out of the 401k and, and move it to this person to have them manage it for me. And that's just, that's just wrong to them. They just can't stand that, that thought. And so because they, they can't stand that thought and, and maybe they've realized as they talk to some advisors that they, they might even know more about investing than some of the advisors they've already talked to. They just have trouble getting over the hump of, oh my goodness, this is a huge one-time decision. And if I just pay someone, you know, 1500 bucks to review my plan for a few hours, I mean, that is a huge, huge value. There, There's yeah. almost definitely going to be things that are in there that you didn't account for or didn't think of. And then you, you talked about it too, where so many people think the idea of a financial advisor is to either make the money or the advisor's out to get them just to sell them something. And I, I put it out there, the goal is to well, be on my Mr. Retirement banner when that, uh, that goes up is avoid big mistakes and pay less retirement taxes. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I'm here to do is if, I mean, there's so many big mistakes I've seen, like you're out hundreds of thousands of dollars because you sold all your stocks in March of 2020. You're 100% invested in stocks, even though you knew you're gonna inv- you were gonna retire in nine months. And March 2020 hits, you sell completely out, and then you're still in cash three years later because you're thinking, well, as soon as it drops, I'll I'll invest in again. I mean, these are $100,000 mistakes, or a lot of them are, I see sometimes in the the Christian community of, you know, this is a few years back of Obama is the devil, and so I'm going to move all my money into gold and oil. Well, guess what went down during the entire eight years that (laughs) Obama was the president, was, was gold and oil. And again, hundreds of thousands of dollars that you lost because of your kind of a political belief about something you can't control. And the same thing happened when Trump came in. You saw the liberal side yeah. do the exact same thing. They're yep. like, oh my God, the world's ending. I'm pulling everything out. It's like, yep. it's so funny. And I, 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 it took me a long time to realize this, right? So I consider myself, right? I have a financial podcast. I've read tons of books, countless things. People do not realize the difference between short-term swings in stock prices and long-term value of companies and stocks. And they just, Mm -hmm. they get it so wrong, right? So something happens which changes, you know, people's expectations. And if you think you're going to be like a short-term investor, and so you're paying attention to all these things, then of course, yeah, you would want to know if you're really doing short-term investing. But for us long-term investors, People just don't understand that the short-term variance isn't a reflection of long-term value. They just, they don't get it. Yeah, they don't get it. And what's interesting too, especially as I'm helping people hit retirement, they were 20 and 30 and 40, and they only view the world in long-term. Like this is all going to, when I'm 65 plus, this is all in the future. And then all of a sudden they get to the point where they, the future is now. And they think that everything has to change all at once. So there's kind of yeah. like two fallacies happen. One is they think all their money is one. Like everything I do, I've got one portfolio and I have to adjust everything down or I have to do everything all at once. So there's a piece of that. And there's also a piece that, especially when you get to that retirement age of 60-ish, you can't have long-term investing unless you also have short-term investments as well too. Right? If you have, if you had all everything focused on the long-term and now you have a short-term, your short-term swings actually do matter. Yeah. And if you pull money towards the short-term at the right time, then you will still hopefully have that sense of calm and that ability to focus on the long-term. You know, if knowing that, oh, this, this money is not going to be touched for 10 years. I can't afford that money to be long-term. And you can't afford that and feel that unless you have short-term money uh, in place. And sometimes you talk to a stock investor and say, hey, you should you know, take money out of the stock market and put it in the bank, especially a year and a half ago, put it in the bank at zero. Yeah. I can't do that. I, I, it's, it's not making any money. Okay. Well, <laughs> what happens when the market drops is you go and put it in the bank anyways, except you just put it in the bank yeah. when it's 20% lower. Yeah. You know, I love Nick Majuli's take on this and just keep buying his book. You know, people get really stuck about when to invest, right? I have this lump sum. Should I put it in right away? Should I dollar cost average it? And you know what he says is you should in, you should invest right away and withdraw slowly. And I love Real. that idea. Like I love the idea that you should be, once you get to that decumulation phase, what's actually going to economically work out best is if you continuously withdraw small amounts over long periods of time, 
which is the exact opposite of what happens when you get a windfall when you should put it in the market right away. Right. And it, it just echoes this idea of time in the market, right? What you're really doing is you're maximizing your time in the market. Uh, doing immediate swings in decumulation never sounds good, right? The no. likelihood you're going to make a mistake is just so much higher. And so if you have that long-term planning and can decumulate over time and liquidate over time and carefully, you're you're just a lot more likely to serve yourself, right? Because then you're liquidating when the market is down and you're liquidating when the market's up. Like you're liquidating yeah. always, right? And it's just, it's averaging out to be reasonable. Like assuming you don't have a huge sequence of returns problem, but that's a whole nother issue. Yeah, well, even then too, let's just assume that you called it right and you pulled your money back out. You pull your money out of the yeah, market. You still got to put it right back time. in. <laughs> you still got to put it back in. So you have to be right twice. twice yeah. And the odds are you won't be right either time, but you have to be right twice for it to work. And yeah, it's just it's just amazing. Just again, it goes back to the control thing of you're you're focusing on the things you can't control and you're ignoring the things you can't control. Like just reverse that and you're gonna be all right. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. 